Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. But as we are going to be talking about all of chapter 7 uh, in some detail this morning, it would be good if you have a Bible to open it to Revelation chapter 7 so you may follow the text as we go and you'll find that helpful. Today is All Saints Day, a day when we remember those of faith who have gone before us, women and men in whom the grace of God was powerfully at work to save them. The Bible refers to all believers as saints. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The author of the book of Jude writes in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So on All Saints' Day, it is only fitting to give thanks for the lives of the saints known to you. They might be famous persons from history, long past, whose examples continue to inspire for generations. Or they might be persons who aren't very famous, men and women known to you perhaps, but maybe not to many others. And yet they are those whom the Lord has used to encourage you. Persons of quiet yet powerful faithfulness. Many of us know such saints and have been greatly impacted by their examples. Today, is when we celebrate and remember those who have gone before us in the journey of faith, and we give thanks to God for his sustaining grace in their lives, even as we seek to run the race set before us as they did. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, the passage that I read at the opening of our service, is about a vision the Apostle John had in the first century. But it's a vision about the end. Verses 9 to 17 contain a vision about the eternal future of all the saints of God. A vision that was intended to be a mighty comfort to John's readers and also to us. Now, the Apostle John was in prison on the island of Patmos in A.D. 96, when the revelation recorded in this book was given to him. Chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And we are just dropping in to Revelation this morning. Not the easiest thing to attempt, I realize. 
We're going to do some pretty heavy lifting, or try to, in a few minutes, but having some sense of where we are in this book will be helpful, I think. If you've read Revelation before, you know that John's vision begins with the glorified Christ in chapter 1, who addresses the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Then, in chapters 4 and 5, John is invited into the heavenly throne room where he sees God and then also Jesus Christ being worshipped. Only, do you recall what it is that John sees exactly in chapter 5 of Revelation? After the vision of the throne room of God in chapter 4, chapter 5 begins with John seeing in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll, sealed with seven seals. A mighty angel asks John in chapter 5, verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And at first it seems there is no one. But then in what is a key uh, interpretive moment in the entire book of Revelation, one of the elders said to John, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John hears of this lion of the tribe of Judah. And then comes chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, John writes, standing as though it had been slain. John heard about a lion, and he then saw a lamb. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then moving ahead into chapter 6 of Revelation, it is the lamb who then proceeds to break six of the seven seals of the scroll of history. Breaking seals numbers 1 to 4 unleash four horsemen who ride out in opposition to the kingdom of God, having been given the authority to wreak havoc on the earth. The fifth seal then reveals that the kingdom of God will not come in its fullness until the number of those who need to give their lives for the gospel is complete. And then comes the sixth seal, the last one that's broken in chapter 6. With the breaking of the sixth seal, the cosmos itself is convulsed in preparation for the final crisis, for the end of history as we know it, for the judgment day of the Lord. At the end of the sixth seal comes the question posed by the unbelieving world, who can stand? Look back there, if you would, in Revelation 6 to verse 15. John writes, beginning in verse 15, Revelation 6, The kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne." And from the wrath of the Lamb, 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can make it through all of this? That's what they're asking. And their expected answer from their perspective is, no one, no one would seem able to stand through all that these six seals of chapter six hath wrought. The question that hangs over the end of Revelation six, to which Revelation seven is the answer, is who is able to make it? Who is able to remain faithful? Who is able to choose to endure the suffering that comes as the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdoms of this world? Who can stand? Well, we know the answer. Revelation 7 gives us that answer. It's not what the kings and those hiding themselves from the wrath of God are expecting. But it's the answer the Bible gives. It's the saints it's the saints who can stand. And it's not just a few individuals. John says it's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Now, I know we did not read from the first part of chapter 7 earlier, but we do need to read from it now because in chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, John tells us something about that great multitude who can stand. He tells us they are those who have been sealed. Those who can stand, those who will make it to the end, they are those who are sealed with the seal of the living God. That's what verses 1 to 8 about, of chapter 7 are all about. It is a two-part vision that John recounts here in chapter 7. Just as in chapter 5, where John first hears about the Lion of Judah and then sees the Lamb who was slain, so too here we find that as part of the first vision, John hears about something and then John sees it. First look at verse 4 of Revelation 7. Verse 4 says, And I heard... I heard the number of the sealed. Verse 9 then says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. What John sees is the reality of what he heard. So we have here in chapter 7 a two-part vision, and though the scenes in the two parts take place in different times and in different places, they are related. The first scene then begins in verse 1, and it'd be good if you have your Bible to read it with me. After this, John writes in verse 1 of chapter 7, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on, on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees 
until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, it may not seem immediately obvious to you on first reading, but while chapter 7 follows chapter 6 in the order of the book of Revelation, chapter 7 is not chronologically following chapter 6. Throughout the book of Revelation, what John sees isn't always in chronological order in terms of when what he sees is taking place. I'm convinced that the first scene of Revelation 7 in verses 1 to 8 happens in fact before anything in Revelation 6. That is the breaking of those first six seals. What I think John is telling his fellow disciples here and telling us today is that they're going to make it. They're going to make it through the Great Tribulation because they were sealed before the seals of the scroll were broken. In Revelation 7, John's first vision is of four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. And some scholars suggest that the number four there is meant to take us back to the breaking of the first four seals in chapter 6, the seals that bring about the riding of the four horsemen. In other words, the four winds that are being held back at the start of chapter 7 are a depiction of the same reality as the four horsemen that are unleashed when the first four seals are broken. Now, if that's right, that means that what's happening in the start of chapter 7 and in the interaction here among the angels takes place before what is described for us in chapter 6, you see. This isn't just grasping at straws here. Like almost everything in Revelation, there's an Old Testament backdrop in view. John seems to have the prophet Zechariah in mind. In Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, the prophet sees four chariots, but then focuses in on the horses drawing these chariots. Four horse-drawn chariots. And as you read Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, you find that these horses are even colored, just as they are here in Revelation chapter 6. And the key is that when Zechariah asks the angel revealing this to him, what those four chariots with their colored horses are, the answer he gets in Zechariah 6 verse 5 is, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. In other words, the four horses can be rightly identified with the four winds. And so here, the four winds of Revelation 7 are the four horsemen of Revelation 6. If that's right, then what chapter 7 verse 3 is saying is that these four winds, these four horsemen cannot blow, they cannot ride forth until the servants of our God have been sealed. Now, the idea is that those who are sealed are protected in some way. And no surprise, 
There is yet another Old Testament text in view here. Ezekiel chapter 9 is likely in the background of this. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God warns of judgment against the evil of the city of Jerusalem in that day. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 10 says, I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And executioners are to be sent through the city, but before they're let loose, Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3 says, A man clothed in linen is sent to put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Those with the mark in Ezekiel chapter 9 are to be spared. Those without the mark are to die. Now, even that episode in Ezekiel 9 has its own backdrop conceptually because it brings to mind a much earlier episode in Exodus chapter 12. In the escape from Egypt, when the people of God are, put, are to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that when the angel of death passes through, those so marked by the blood are passed over. I think both of those passages from Ezekiel and Exodus are likely in the background here. Before these four winds blow, before any of the seals of the scroll of history are broken by the Lamb, before that, the servants of God are to be sealed. They are to be protected. Protected from the ultimate consequences of the breaking of these seals of the scroll in Revelation 6. And if you go to read on in Revelation, protected from the blowing of the seven trumpets and the pouring out of the seven bowls, all of which are described in Revelation chapters 8 to 16. In other words, John interrupts, John is interrupted by this vision in order to see that those who are sealed are those who will make it. They will be those who are able to stand. They are secure, which is not to say they're safe. The great tribulation is still theirs to endure. But endure it they shall, you see. They shall stand. How? Well, one commentator explains that it's because the seal that protects them enables them to respond in faith to the trials through which they pass, so that these trials become, in fact, the very instruments by which they can be strengthened in their faith. The seal strengthens faith and protects the servants of God from responding to the horror of history in unbelief. It's probably more than we can tackle adequately this morning, but I think that the seal that John talks about here is nothing less than the Holy Spirit himself in the lives of the faithful. It is the great truth that we, we heard earlier in the service in the text that Darren read. When Paul in Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Yes. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, John sees the plan before it's carried out. Ahead of the great tribulation, the servants of God are sealed. And who are they, these servants of God? Well, you may already sense this is another interpretive divide in how one reads the book of Revelation. I'll give you my view of it. In my view, those who are sealed and who are able to stand are the saints all the saints. This is where the connection between the first and the second part of Revelation 7 becomes critical. Look now again at verse 4 of Revelation 7. John just saw the four angels holding back the four winds and another angel coming to announce the plan to seal the servants of God, right? And then in verse 4, John writes climactically, and I heard the number of the sealed, 100 44,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now let me make two controversial points regarding that verse. First, I do not take the number 144,000 with mathematical literalism. 144,000 is a Hebrew way of saying a number beyond counting. Here's how one author explains this. The number 144 is 12 times 12. 12 is clearly a loaded symbol. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. 144,000 is 12 squared times 10 cubed, for you mathematicians. You will recall, the author continues, that Peter once asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, not up to seven, but up to 70 times seven. That is, seven times seven, then times 10. A Hebrew way of saying a big number. The number 144,000 is therefore hugely symbolic. Is it 12 tribes of Israel times 12 tribes of Israel? Or is it 12 tribes of Israel times 12 apostles of the Lamb? Either way, multiplying that by 10 would be a Hebrew way to say big. Multiplying by 10 again is a Hebrew way to say really big. And multiplying by 10 yet again is a Hebrew way to say really, really big. It is as if to say, you cannot number them all. Now the second controversial point that I think uh, comes out of verse 4 is that the sons of Israel here in verse 4, then unpacked in the somewhat unusual list of the 12 tribes that come in verses 5 to 8, which we won't talk about, I do think, I do not think that this is to specify only those who are ethnic Jews. 
Rather, I think it is to picture Israel, now understood as God's people, made up of Jews and Gentiles. In other words, I think the point here is that the purpose of Old Testament Israel is being realized. Israel was called and chosen for the sake of all peoples and all tongues and all ethnicities. And the church of Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's the new Israel that John hears about in this moment. James addressed his letter to Gentile and Jewish Christians, calling them the 12 tribes in the dispersion in James 1 verse 1. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 38, 28, excuse me, for there is no, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. You may recall how at the end of his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 6, verse 16, Paul calls the church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God. I think the sons of Israel in Revelation 7 is exactly the same reality. The vast number of people that John hears referenced in verse 4 is the multitude of God's people now consisting of Jews and Gentiles because it's when we move to verse 9 of Revelation 7 that we then see, just as John did, what it's all about. What John now sees in the second part of Revelation 7, the passage that we opened the service with this morning, what John now sees is the reality of what he's heard in verse 4. It's another vision, a vision of a different time and a different place. We've gone here from the past to the future. Whereas verses 1 to 8 depicted a scene from before the Great Tribulation, verses 9 to 17 are the scene from after it. From the end, in fact. What John now sees is the ultimate hope of all the saints, those who have been sealed by God himself. John writes in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, not just Israel, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What are they doing? They're standing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The two-part vision of Revelation 7 is about the same blessed group. The innumerable number of those who have been sealed, they are those who can stand. They are those who will endure. It's a vision of all the saints. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, the Lord promised Abraham, the father of Israel. God's call on ethnic Israel was always for the nations. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is now fulfilling that call by bringing the nations to himself during the time of the Great Tribulation. 
John intends for this to be of tremendous comfort to his readers and to us. They have been sealed. Sealed before the unsealing of the scroll of history. As those so sealed, this will be their end, John says. And this will be our end, brothers and sisters, when we have persevered. It's salvation. The heavenly reward we've been talking so much about in Hebrews. It's eternal life in the new creation everlasting intimacy with the Lamb who is our shepherd. Dear friends, what could be a more appropriate focus than this on All Saints Day? We need this vision to be faithful, don't we? How else are we going to endure the suffering and tribulation that comes our way? God saves his people. In the end, what are they praising him for? You see, it's here in verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now assembled around the throne, they ascribe their salvation, their full deliverance from all evil, including the consequences of their own evil, they ascribe it to God. All praise goes to God and the Lamb for their salvation because salvation is God's work. He is the one who delivers his people. The whole host of heaven knows that is so. The salvation of some from every people group fills the angels around the throne with praise. They fall on their faces to worship God Verses 11 and 12, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's a lot of detail that we will not be talking about there in Revelation chapter 7. Maybe we will someday. But to close our time this morning, I want to address one other thing in this chapter that comes next in verses 13 and 14. After this scene of angelic worship, John writes in verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Perhaps that's the question you've been asking the whole time. Verse 14, John, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the final element I want to address at the end here is this language of the tribulation. I've already talked about it in this sermon in ways that will give away my understanding of it, but I think it's important to make it clear because I think it unlocks the nature of the strong comfort Revelation 7 is meant to give us. Verse 14 says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
You'll notice here that the angelic elder who addresses John, uh, beginning in verse 13, uh, John had seen here this future vision of the saints from all nations and tribes and peoples and languages around the throne. And the angel says they are those coming out of the great tribulation. Not those who came out, nor those who will come out, but those who are coming out. I think implying for John that something was happening then in year AD 96 and that something is happening even now. Now, because our time is almost up, I'm going to quote at length from one author who explains this, I think, quite well. Quote, The word that is translated tribulation is the Greek word flipsis. As we saw before in this author's book, that means pressure. John is referring to the pressure along the line where the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms of humanity in rebellion against God. The best picture of this is a geological one. Beneath the earth's crust are tectonic plates, huge masses of rock that slowly, constantly move. The pressure experienced at the point where the tectonic plates collide is thlipsis. The Great Tribulation is what takes place when the kingdom of God invades the world and comes up against kingdoms that are inconsistent with it. And then listen to this, because this is the key question. The author asks, when does this take place? In John's mind, it started when Jesus came into the world. In John's mind, the tribulation, the great tribulation, began with the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. It began with Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the personal embodiment of the kingdom. The great tribulation has been on since Jesus came. It was on in John's day. It has been on all through church history. It is on even now. Ask believers in China or Rwanda. The New Testament says it will intensify as we get closer to the final crisis, but it has been on ever since the angels filled the night sky with the song, there has been born for you a savior. It is on right now because the kingdom of God is on right now. End of quote. Near the beginning of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 9, John says of himself, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Think about that. Tribulation and kingdom and endurance they go together. They always go together. 
What do we need to stand? What do we need to make it to be those who patiently endure as members of God's kingdom through the tribulation that characterizes the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ? Answer, we need the vision John gives us in Revelation 7. We need to know the future of all the saints, of those who have been sealed. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when Logan read that for us just a few minutes ago in our service. Matthew 5 verses 10 and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It cannot be an accident that All Saints Day this year is also the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. In a moment, Sandra is going to lead us in prayer, including prayer for the persecuted church around the world. And brothers and sisters, as we pray for those who suffer persecution, and as we ourselves suffer tribulation of various kinds, now or in the days to come, we need to hold on to what we have seen in Revelation 7. We need to hold on to the fact that we have been sealed in the past, and we need to hold on to the fact that in the future, we'll be part of that great multitude around the throne. In other words, verses 15 to 17 of our text is our future. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, John writes, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.